I'm going to tell you what the objective is of the class uh, before we get started, and we'll pray, and then the note should be here. Uh, we're studying the theology of Christmas, so that means we're going to go through all of the birth narratives and those narratives associated with the birth narratives. And what we're going to do is we're going to look for God. That's why it's called the theology of Christmas. We're going to look for God. Oh, thank you, Don. More notes. Uh, let's see. Who has, who didn't get the notes? Whoever, we got people over there. Uh, let's see. Where's my brother-in-law? I was going to put him to work. Did he already leave me or someplace? Mr. Way, will you do that for us? Is he doing that? Thank you, sir. He'll take care of it. Um, so when we study this, there are going to be a number of questions that, that are going to be on our mind as we go through this study. The first question is this. What do we learn about God from the narrative? We want to know what we know about his person and his work from the narrative. The second question that we'll always be asking here is what do we learn about people from the narrative? So we're going to learn what do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? And then the final question is what do you learn about yourself? In other words, we want it to be personalized. So we're going to ask that final question, which is going to have a direct application for you. So three questions. What do we know about God? from this narrative? What do we learn about people? And then what do we learn about ourselves as we look at these narratives? So I'm going to pray and then we're going to take the Christmas quiz and we're going to do it together. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to be here cleansed of all of the myths surrounding Christmas. So that's my purpose in that so I can get your heart ready for the actual events. So we're going to cleanse your, your minds, hopefully, from all of the myths that surround Christmas. And what my favorite story is when I was in Wisconsin visiting some friends who took me to this place called Christmas Land or some subdivision like that. And you could see it from highway to highway. The whole area was lit up because everybody, everybody in that subdivision went ballistic on decorations. And so I saw the most unique nativity scene I'd ever seen, ever. And so it just reminded me, boy, the people need to understand Christmas. Because at the nativity scene, they had Joseph and Mary and the baby. Um, they had all of the wise men, just three wise men. They had the cattle. They had the Smurfs. They had the drummer boy. And the one that really shocked me was a full life-size cut out cardboard of Brett Favre throwing a football. And I thought, I did not know that all of those people were at the event of the birth of Christ. But uh, the point I'm making is that a lot of myth has been developed over the years surrounding the Christmas story. So let's, what we're going to be doing through the true and false questions is just becoming more biblical about our perspective. Anybody else need a notes? Anyone else? Thank you so much, my brother. Thank you for that. He made sure you all got him. So we're going to do the true and false together, but let me pray. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I really appreciate the turnout today, Lord, and may this be very, very practical for all of us 
as we begin to study the birth narratives in Scripture and try to understand all that we can about this marvelous, incredible miracle when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and the purpose for which He came, which really He came to die, He went from the major to the cross, to the empty tomb, and then directly back to heaven. All of that in the accomplishment of the plan of redemption. And so grant to these dear people hearts that are open for the implanting of the truth, uh, Lord, and, and enable me to uh, speak the truth to these people in such a way that I enhance their understanding. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So let me go through this with you. Let's go together. You can answer as you will, as you want, but let's deal with it together. Number one, as long as Christmas has been celebrated, it has been on December 25th. True or false? False. Thank you so much to hear that. Yeah, it was a co-opted date. Uh, uh, one of the popes back in many, many, many centuries ago uh, saw that many, many of the people, the Catholic people, were getting involved in the pagan face, uh, pagan festival called Saturnella. And it was a, it was a 10-day long celebration. Uh, the highlight of the celebration was on December 25th. And it was the celebration called Saturnella. It was the celebration of the summer solstice, the winter solstice and the summer solstice anticipating all of that. And so he did not want the people uh, to be celebrating that, the people that were confessing to be Christians. Uh, so he co-opted the holiday and made that the birth of Christ. So as far as we know, the actual birth, based upon just looking at the narrative, must have taken place sometime in a summer because uh, shepherds are not out in their fields watching their flock by night in December in Israel. That would be like watching your flocks by night in Chicago in December. <laughs> and so I don't think that that's a good idea. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it probably was a summer, summer months or a warmer months, but nobody knows exactly what the day is. So Im important you get that. Um, two, Joseph was from Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Nazareth, Egypt, Minnesota. None of these. What do you think? A. A. He was from Bethlehem. Yeah, um, he was working in Nazareth, perhaps his, perhaps his family went there and established their carpentry business, but uh, he was from Bethlehem. Three, how did Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem? A, a camel, B, a donkey, C, walked, D, a VW, E, Joseph walked and Mary rode a donkey, F, who knows? F, we don't know. But you say, wait a minute, my Christmas card has them walking and they were there. I know. Uh, I'm going to destroy two things today. Most of your Christmas cards and your nativity scene. And so I hate to do it, but just trying to be biblical, folks. Uh, number four, Mary and Joseph were married when Mary became pregnant. False. Yeah, matter of fact, let's look at that passage, Matthew, just because I want to make sure you get that. She was not married, and that was a... That was one of her own personal concerns. Remember when the angel told her that she was going to conceive a child, 
uh, she said, how can that be since I've never been with a man? So she was concerned about that. She was betrothed to Joseph. What that, that's like an engagement, but not the exact same thing. Uh, betrothal is a part of the process of arranged marriages. Uh, back when they were just children, uh, Joseph's parents and Mary's parents made an agreement that they would be married. Uh, and so at that point, when she became marrying age, uh, they would consider them betrothed. They're already spoken for. Uh, they're, actually, during the betrothal period, she would be called his wife, although they did not consummate the celebration. There was a specific Jewish celebration, which was a week-long celebration. And in the middle of the week, the couple would go off and consummate the marriage. Then she would be officially known as his wife. But prior to that, she would be betrothed. In um, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, two things are said there. Is it verse 18? Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the whole story. It says, now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So not, the marriage hasn't happened yet. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So she wasn't married when she was pregnant, and that's a problem. Most of you don't understand the potential was very high. If Joseph would have been a different kind of guy, the potential is very high for her to be taken out and stoned by the elders because she was betrothed and she would have been considered unfaithful to the man to whom she was to marry. Uh, so it could have been a bad situation, but Joseph did not want that to happen. So he wanted to put her away secretly. I'm sure that he was impressed with her character. He was perplexed by the circumstance. If you read that on birth, uh, right after verse 19 on uh, there, it says, uh, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, which he could have done, uh, he planned to send her away secretly. Uh, but when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her, in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she will call his name Yahshua, Jesus, or the salvation is from God. That's what the name means. And by the way, his name signifies exactly what it was. Verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. This is Isaiah 7:14, and shall bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Uh, Joseph and Mary had other children, but not until the child was born. So that's very important. Let's go on. Was it number five? Uh, yeah, Mary and Joseph were married when Jesus was born. We already said what? True. False. <laughs> yeah, we're getting complicated here. Take a look in Luke chapter 2. Yeah, Luke chapter 2. 
<laughs> yeah, this is fun. That's why I like it so much. <laughs> it says, uh, take a look at verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So there's still the engagement, the consummation, the marriage ceremony had not yet taken place. Number six, Mary was a virgin when she delivered Jesus. Now we're starting to get a little nervous here. She was a virgin when she delivered Jesus. What do you think? True. True. I remember I had a professor at Moody and we used to call him Dr. Trick. And because all of his uh, exams, he would give you an A, B, C, D. And his question was, which one of these is most true? And, and uh, oh, so I would say, well, which one do you think is most true? And he never fell for it. I had to answer it. But he scared me so much that I think he had a, I had a real simple question, true or false, um, there are three persons in the Trinity. And I went, you're not going to get me false. You know, and he scared me to give the wrong answer. So I'm not trying to do that. But <laughs> number six, uh, Mary was a virgin when she delivered. Uh, and that is true. Yeah, seven, what did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph? A, there's no room in the inn. B, I have a stable you can use. C, come back after Christmas rush. And I should have some vacancies. Uh, D, both A and B. E, none of these. That's right. He ne we don't have anything about a, an innkeeper. That's part of the cartoons and the myths that surround Christmas that is sort of unfortunate, but that's not what happened. Uh, number eight, Jesus was delivered in a, st a, a stable, B, a manger, C, a cave, D, a barn, E, we don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, he was laid in a manger. He was probably born in a barn. Because that's where the manger is. Do you understand that? A manger is a feeding trough. So he was, after he was born, he was laid in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. And usually they were in a barn or some sort of enclosed structure. You know, so that's why we're, we're saying this. By the way, don't get mad at me at the end of this here, but I want to... <laughs> Number nine. Wait a minute. Answer D or E. Which one did I say? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's I should say E. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, number nine. A manger is a stable for domestic animals. I just gave you this one. A wooden hay storage bin or a feeding trough. So I'm just gonna. What is it? It's a C. A feeding trough. Uh, number 10, who saw the star in the east? A, shepherds. B, Mary and Joseph. C, three kings, both A and C. Uh, e, none of these. Yeah, uh, there's no three kings. There's magi. Magi are not kings. They're astrologers, which, by the way, I probably just gave you another answer. <laughs> yeah, they were not three kings. I know, but the song says we three kings. And the song says, a rump a pum pum there was a drummer there. I know, I know. None of that is true. It's the myths surrounding Christmas. 
Uh, okay, on 11. What did the angels sing? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. B, hallelujah. C, unto us a child is born. D, glory to God in the highest. E, glory to the newborn king. And then finally F, none of these. What do you think? D, glory to God in the highest. Now, if you look at, don't, don't do it now, we'll look at it later. But if you look at Luke 2, 13 through 14, it doesn't say that they sang anything. It says they said it. All the angels said it, almost in unison. Glory to God in the highest and so forth. So just a little extra. Do you all want to look there? Look there, would you? Look at, look at, look at 2, Luke 2, 13. Uh, we, we, I don't know, you know, because even when we see him in the Holy of Holies, uh, when they're the cherubim, which is our, our, our rank of angels, are, are saying holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God. So that's a great question. Her question is, do angels sing? Um, I don't know. If, does it say anything? Herald the angel. Herald, yeah. Hark the herald. Yeah, okay. So Mr. Emerson gave us a great answer there. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, where was I? 213. I'm on 13. What is a heavenly host? A, the angel at the gate of heaven. B, the angel who invites people to heaven. C, the angel who serves as in heaven. D, an angel choir. E, an angel army. F, none of these. It is E, an angel army. army, The heavenly host. Whenever you see that uh, Jesus is the Lord of the heavenly host, he is, he is the Lord of the angelic vast army, if you will. C, what is frankincense? This is great. A, a precious metal. B, a precious fabric. C, a precious perfume. D, an Eastern monster. E, none of these. You know, Frankenstein, Frankenstein. C, a precious perfume. Costly, very costly perfume. That's why whenever someone would give it or someone would use it, uh, they were, that's a very, very expensive perfume. Uh, 14, how many wise men came to see Jesus? I should have wrote when he was born. How many wise men came to see Jesus? None. There were no wise men at the manger. Shocker of all shockers, the wise men, if you look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, someone look at Matthew 2, 11, and then I don't have to read it all the time. I'm sorry, I have this all in your way. That's right, yeah. What does somebody read it out loud? Matthew 2.11. Matthew 2.11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, mm -hmm. they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah. So it says they came where? To where? To a what? Into the house. house. It's probably two years after Christ was born when they finally arrived. And the reason that we say there's three of them all the time is because of the gifts they gave. But there is nothing in the Bible how many came. We tend to think there was only three of them uh, because of the three gifts. But that's not necessarily true. Yes, Deb, you had your um, hand. I have a, a New King James version Bible. Uh, a New King James, yeah. 
they came to Jerusalem to, if you look at that, if you read on further, they came to Jerusalem to find, they went over to, uh, who was it, Herod? And they wanted to know where this king was at. So that's why they came to Jerusalem. But they didn't go to the birthplace of Christ. They went to the house that he was now staying in. You get that? It's important you get that. All right. Yes. Uh, did I skip 15? Uh, maybe, no, I think we're on it now. What does wise men refer to? A, men of uh, educated class. B, they were Eastern kings. C, they were astrologers. D, they were smart enough to follow the star. E, they were sages. C, they were astrologers. I gave that away, didn't I? I don't know why I do that. All right, number 16. The wise men found Jesus in A, a manger, B, a stable, C, a house, D, an inn, and what do we say? C, a house. Uh, 17, the wise men stopped in Jerusalem, A, to inform Herod about Jesus, B, find out where Jesus was, C, ask about the star they saw, D, ask directions, E, buy presents for Jesus. B, to find out where he was. They wanted to know where is this king of Israel. And boy, did that set Herod off. What do you mean, king? By the way, he was a puppet king. He was appointed by the Roman government. So, and the people did not like him. So his position was always suspect of ending at some point because the people really didn't care for him. He was from the Herodian family and they had a succession of people who became leaders in Israel. But he did not uh, you know, come as typical, the typical kings of Israel came into their position. He was appointed by Rome. Um, are we on 18? Yeah, we're 18. When Joseph and Mary found out that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, what happened? A, they got married. B, Joseph wanted to break the engagement. C, Mary left town for three months. D, an angel told them to go to Bethlehem. E, both A and D, F, both C, B and C. B and C, right. Uh, Joseph wanted to, to break the engagement. We just read that. That's what he was thinking of doing. And then they left town. Mary left town for three months after she found out that her relative Elizabeth was in her sixth month. And she left and went to be with them for three months. So just so you know that. And then finally, 20, Joseph took the baby Jesus to Egypt, A, to show him what it was like, B, to teach him the wisdom of the pharaohs, C, because he dreamed about it, D, to be taxed. I don't know why anyone would go to any place to be taxed. And E, none of these. And the answer is what? C, because he dreamt about it. He was told in a dream, take that the baby and the parent and the mother and get him out of here because the Lord was protecting the baby from what was happening uh, with, did I skip 19? I'm sorry. Uh, who directed Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? A, the angel, B, Mary's mother, C, Herod, D, uh, Caesar Augustus, E, Alexander the Great, F, no one. And the answer is D, Caesar Augustus. How did he do that? by issuing a decree that everybody had to go to their home city. Uh, and the reason that he did that, his decree 
was for basically two purposes, to find out who in the kingdom, where everybody in the kingdom lived, and that was used for taxation. And then the second reason was for the military draft. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why they held those census. And in making this, by the way, we'll talk about this as we talk about who God is, in the outworking of God's providence, God used this man's decree to take Mary and Joseph, who were in Nazareth, 80 miles over to Bethlehem. And so in accordance with the scripture, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Now, he was raised in Nazareth. So he's often referred to as Jesus the Nazarene. But he was really from born in the city of Bethlehem. So just so you all know that, okay? Yeah. The, what did I give us? Oh, we said uh, it, it is um, on 20? You, I'm sorry, 19? It is D, which would be Caesar Augustus. No, I, I was just elaborating on that. I was saying the reason for the census is because of, you know, finding out where people were and taxing people and drafting people into the military. Okay, so uh, that's your little test. Uh, and if there's, yes, number seven, um, what did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph E? He didn't, there's no innkeeper in scripture. So I don't know what to say. I know it's in the songs. I, so, um, so now some of you are going to go home and if you've got your manger scene set up, you're going to remove the three guys. Wait two years and bring them back. Uh, and you're still wrong because they didn't go to the place where he was born. Uh, so just so you know. All right, now let's take out the big notes. The big notes. Do we have any more of those notes left? No? Did we hand them all out, Mr. Way? Yeah? All right, we'll get, we'll get some more for you folks. Make sure you get the notes because we... Uh, it's on my app or on the church app uh, under uh, resources for this class. But you, for some of us older folks, we just make notes. We, make, we like paper. We don't like uh, to read books online, us older folks. We like to write. But people say, you can write with your computer. You can take, I know, yeah. So uh, ask my wife about her contact list on her phone. She has a nice Apple phone. Who's on that contact list? Uh, just a few people. It's hardly any people on that list. So she memorizes everybody's phone number. <laughs> My problem is I would do that too, but I would not remember your phone number in the moment I need it. I would remember it like two weeks later. So that's my problem on that one. All right, let's take a look at this theology of Christmas. And remember my purpose in looking at the theology of Christmas. I want to learn what I can about God from the stories. I want to learn about people from the stories. And I want to learn about myself from what I see here. So let's go. We got a, an excerpt from an article uh, from an Episcopalian diocese, um, a, a leader in that 
particular group. And so I'm quoting him. These are not my words. I've got to make sure uh, you understand. This is his perspective on Santa Claus. Um, there are few causes to which I am more passionately committed than that of Santa Claus. Santa Claus deserves not just any place in the church, but the highest place of honor. We should be enthroned as the long-bearded ancient of days, the divine and holy one whom we call God. Okay, let's read on. He's not done. Santa Claus is God the Son. You better watch out. You better not pout. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows whether you've been bad or good. He slips into the secrets of the heart as easily as he slips down the chimney. Santa Claus is God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, in whose hands is a, a pack bursting, and it seems, with gifts of his creation. Santa Claus is God the Father, who comes with the sound of a gentle laughter with a shape like a bowl, bowl full of jelly, and he comes in the night to sow the seeds of good humor. Santa Claus indeed deserves the exalted and throne place in the church, for he is God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. I've seen him in the toy store. I saw him in his car on the freeway the other day. <laughs> By the way, remember he's an Episcopalian, probably from the 60s. He probably saw a lot of things. I just, just, and he's from California. We have some people here from California, please. Not you. I know you're, you're sane. Uh, so where was I? Yeah. He, uh, and we saw him in his uh, crazy beard and his baggy suit. I saw, I saw more than the seasonal merchant of cheap plastic toys. I saw no less than the triune God. I hope you can see him too. And my answer is, I hope not. Because that has nothing to do with scripture whatsoever. Uh, even the whole matter of Santa Claus as it appears. If I ever have time, I'll tell you the background on that, uh, where that Santa Claus concept came into existence. But let's read on. Uh, and from this revelation, we will discover many practical uh, the revelation of God. From this revelation, we will discover many practical principles that warm our hearts and serve to comfort us as we live in this sin-sick and dying world. In the unfolding of the wonderful story of Christmas, we will find the perfections of God's character serving in the background as the catalyst for the accomplishment of our salvation. So you're going to see various aspects of God's character that are dominant in a particular scene. Sometime more than one or two attributes of God are affecting that scene that you're reading about as God brings to us the Savior, uh, matter of fact, the Savior of the world. We'll begin our journey in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke and take note of two miraculous birth narratives. In them, we will see the awesome character and the deeds of our God in providing for us the Savior of the world. By the way, that one verse should not read John 3.14. Oh, First uh, John 3.14, not 3.14. Just want to make that correction. I was going through it today and I thought, First John 4.14, I thought that's not correct. But we do find the Savior of the world. Now, 
the very first attribute that you're going to witness, but not necessarily the last, is the power of God. Now, what do we mean when we talk about God's power? Um, what is a, what's your understanding of God's power? I mean, so many times in Scripture, God is described as the almighty God. So what is meant by the power of God? What do you think? Yes, you've got your hand halfway up. Go ahead. I'll let you. Well, I was thinking of it as he's the creator. He's a creator. So he has the power to do that. Also we see his power at Calvary. Yeah, and the cross. Yeah. So in other words, what, what you're saying, and, and, and the power is demonstrated in the fact that God created everything from nothing. And just by his spoken mandate, everything came into existence. But what do we mean in particular about God's power? Those are things he's done to demonstrate it. But what do we mean in particular about his power? Pardon me? His authority, that, more, that has more to do with his sovereignty. Yeah. yeah, it's related. Here, let me just say, the power of God, we... The, Theologians use a technical term called omnipotence. Omnip you've heard that term before. Omnipotence basically describes the unlimited power of God. And in the exercise of God's power, the only limitation on God's power is the perfection of who he is. In other words, God does not have the power to do evil. Why? It's, yeah, he can't. He does nothing against the perfection of who he is. Other than that, he is all powerful. And you're going to kind of see some of that in what this narrative is going to feed us. So now I want us to look in Luke chapter 1 and begin in verse 5, and we'll make our way down to verse 25. Luke chapter 1, 5 to 25. Uh, says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So there's nothing necessarily notable about Mr. Zacharias. He was a Levitical priest from the division of Abijah. He was not a high priest. His wife she was from the bloodline of the, the priest, the high priesthood, Aaron. But he was just a priest, and he was serving. Uh, and it was his turn specifically to burn incense in the temple in this moment. Look at verse 6. It describes them as they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. Now, that does not mean perfection. That means the consistency of character. Um, in other words, when they sin, they did what God told them to do, to acknowledge their sin or confess their sin. But they were consistent in righteous behavior. In other words, characteristically, they always conformed to the righteous standards of God. These two people were very good people. They would be people that each of us would look up to uh, because of the character they possessed. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in age. That's a strike one, two, and three uh, for a woman. Um, 
She was barren, proven in her marriage, over the history of their marriage, that she was never able to have a child. Now she's advanced in age. That could mean anywhere from mid-60s into middle-70s, perhaps even more. Uh, and so she is beyond childbearing years. She's beyond childbearing years. You've heard me say, I'm so glad that Cindy and I are beyond childbearing years because if God gave, her, gave us a child, I would forget where I put the child and that would not, not be a good thing. Plus, I don't have the strength. I've, I've stayed with my young grandchildren a couple of times and I was totally exhausted. My ambition was just keep them alive until their parents came back. That was my ambition. So I chase them all around. It was quite, yeah, well, that's a whole other story. Uh, so let's read on. So it, it, it now happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, each division would take turns in this. This is an honorable thing to do. Verse 9, and according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. The reason they did that is because the incense offering was a symbol. The smoke of the incense was a symbol of their prayers rising up to God. So that's why they had that special time. And the people would gather in the, um, in the outside of the holy place because he was in the holy place, not the holy of holies. Only the priest, high priest could go there, but in the holy place. And then there was the court right outside of that. There's a court of Gentiles, but then there's another court where the Jewish people would gather while that ceremony was going on in the holy of holies. And they were acknowledging that was a beautiful sign that God hears their prayers. Their prayers are directed to him. And so he's doing that in accordance with the law. Uh, the law would have told him to do that very thing. Uh, and then what happens? Well, it says in verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Uh, he, there's probably a lot of thoughts that went through his mind. Uh, there was a proper procedure for entering that holy place, even though it wasn't the Holy of Holies. Perhaps he may have thought, oh no, I violated the procedure. This angel has come to slay me. Uh, he, 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 I would be frightened too, because nobody else but him is supposed to be there, you see. And then all of a sudden he's got this angel. And so he's kind of afraid. I would be too. But then verse 13, and the angel said to him, do not be afraid. I would have went, oh, that's good. <laughs> Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will give him the name John. Very interesting. John is the English translation of the Hebrew word, Yohannes. Uh, John, uh, I mean the Greek word. The Hebrew word is yakanan. And you know what that means? Jehovah gives. It also means Jehovah has been gracious. So now keep in mind this poor woman, Elizabeth, in Egypt, when you could not bear a child, 
the women of your city and the men of your city would conclude that you were under a curse. <coughs> that you were under a curse for, for some reason, perhaps unknown to you, but it was a curse to not be able to bear your husband children. And so she would have been ridiculed for that. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure she was demeaned to many people by that false notion, which is not true, obviously, right? You all know that. That's not a sign of being under a curse. But the other thing I want you to notice here, and you need to take this to heart, his prayer is going to be answered. We were, Cindy and I were talking about this on the way to the car, in, in the car. Uh, most of us people, when we pray, we pray for something. I'm sure both Elizabeth and Zacharias prayed together often in their married years for what? Now, probably by this time, do you think they did much praying about a child anymore? No. Because what did they conclude about that prayer? It was a no. But it wasn't a no. It was a not yet. Sometimes when you and I pray, we make the conclusion, it's a no. But sometimes it's nothing more than a not yet. Because God always does everything in perfect time. Now, a lot of times in my prayers, I want him to do things right now. And he doesn't always listen to me, even though I work for him. Would you believe that? <laughs> So sometimes God, when he answers prayers, it's immediate. <clears throat> Many times it's not yet. Here's another way he answers your prayer. I have something better. Paul prayed before God with a threefold request. Prayed three times. Lord, please take this. Remember what it was? A thorn in my flesh from me. Now, the thorn in the flesh, some people think was a physical illness. Other people think it was the false apostles in, uh, in Corinth who were dogging his trail and disenfranchising him from the people of Corinth. And so he was praying, please deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. And he prayed three times. And what was the answer? No, I have something better. Better than your request. You see, Paul, my power is perfected in your weakness. <laughs> so I've got something better. Here's a shocker. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed three times. Lord, if possible, please take this cup from me. Figuratively speaking, the cup symbolized the horrific torture and all that he would go through to bear the sins of all the people of the world upon himself. And he prayed three times, probably driven by himself as a person, as he contemplated, with just within hours, he was going to be tortured like an in an unbelievable way. And what was the answer to his prayer? Three times. No, there's something better. For you will rescue my people from their sins. So I just thought I would give you that little insight on the subject of prayer because 
the two of these people, I'm telling you, they thought, you know, probably when they got to be about even maybe 57, <laughs> you know, honey, maybe we should just give up on that prayer. I'm, I'm going to be 58 in two months. Uh, I don't know that I can handle a child, whatever. They, I'm sure they gave up. And yet God is providing now a child to them. And by the way, this was not done through God just using biology as the instant or the, the spark from which this would come. This is a miracle. We're going to tell you what that means in just a minute. Somebody had their hand. Yes, sir. Yeah. Why wouldn't he then pray that? And if he knew, if he was part of the Trinity, and he knew that it was required because of his own nature yeah. to execute that yeah. sacrifice, why would he pray that? Yeah, you have to understand that Jesus Christ, unlike any other of the members of the Trinity, was fully God and fully man. And it was probably the humanity part of him from which that prayer sprang, not his deity. Because he knew in his deity the nature of the torture that he was about to experience. And to me, um, like I, I know if Christ doesn't come, uh, I'm going to die. I don't want him to tell me today the day and how it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know about you. Do you? Does anybody here want to know? <laughs> Uh, some of us think there is no date. Don't even talk about it, you know. Or like the comedian says, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> you know. But he knew exactly when he was going to die and how he's going to die. So in the humanity, I think that prayer sprang from that, you know. It's just in the same way as he said, he did not know the day or the hour, but the Father knows. You know, that, that's a reflection of his humanity. And he was fully that, and he was fully God at the same time. All right, let's go on. So uh, verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, a gift from God, a, a gift of Jehovah gives. That's what John means. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This is going to be a good day. This is going to be a great day. 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is yet in his mother's womb. Yow, that's amazing. This young man was going to just be conceived, has the filling, he's under the control of the spirit while in the mother's womb. That perhaps is the answer why in another passage we'll read, when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, the scripture said, the boy, the boy in her womb jumped for joy. Joy in her womb. Uh, at the and, and he still John's still in his mom's womb, but he jumps for joy. By the way, do you know what that means? That means that that baby in the womb had emotions. If the baby has emotions, 
That's one of the attributes of personhood. He also had, he must have, must have intellect, emotions, and will. So just from that one statement, we learn that the baby in the womb was a person. It's a person waiting to be born. And by the way, I just need to tell you, as a former fetus, I'm against abortion. <laughs> so you know that. But the point is, the baby is in the womb and jumping for joy, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel's back to the Lord their God. Just like uh, the book Malachi says in the last chapter, that uh, the forerunner of the Messiah would do. Verse 17, And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. This is a direct quote from the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, he will turn the hearts of the father back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. His job was preparatory. He was coming as the forerunner. His message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And by the way, if the kingdom of God is at hand, that meant that the king was of the kingdom was at hand as well. So his message was repent. And the reason he was saying that is because the people of Israel, the best way that they could be prepared for the coming of their Messiah is to have their sins well confessed, repented and confessed. And many people under John's ministry were baptized with John's baptism. John's baptism is not the same as a Christian baptism. John's baptism signified that you repented of your sins and your heart was prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Christian baptism basically means that you have placed your faith in that Messiah to save you by his death and resurrection. So your baptism as Christians is an outward sign of the inward reality of the exercise of saving faith. But John's baptism is not the same. That baptism was get your heart ready. Get your heart ready. The baptism of the Christian is I know who the Messiah is. I recognize myself as a sinner. I've entrusted my salvation of my soul to him. And I want to go public with that. There was one teacher that told me all the time, baptism is public surrender to the Lordship of Christ. You're letting everybody know he is your savior. He is my Lord. And so um, his baptism was different. I just wanted to highlight that. Um, now, here's a problem with Zach, Zacharias, and I have great sympathy for him, but take a look in verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? You see, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What's he saying here? What? I'm sorry. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, thank you, Gabriel. That was very, very nice. But I want to tell you about my circumstance. My wife and I are beyond childbearing years. Uh, you know, maybe somebody misled you. You see, uh, by the way, he is a perfect example of you and I. Oftentimes, 
we find it much, much easier to place our faith in our circumstance rather than the Lord who is over our circumstance. You see that? It's very, very... Have you ever met somebody who said, you know, you say, how are you doing? And they say, well, under the circumstances. I always want to say, what are you doing under there? Get out. <laughs> you see what I mean? It's God is the Lord of, he's over that. God was not in heaven saying, Gabriel, tell me, how are we going to do this? This lady is pretty old, you know. And look at Zacharias. He didn't even have any hair left. You see, he, no, God knows how to handle this stuff. He does things his way. By the way, the whole purpose of this is to make sure that everyone knew that's impossible. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't use the name of God and the word impossible in the same sentence unless you say, well, there's nothing impossible with God. <laughs> so this is what's going on here. But uh, I feel for him. I feel for him. He... He basically was saying, I don't know, how can you be certain about this? Well, the angel Gabriel is going to help him to be certain. Verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. By the way, there's only two angels named in the Bible. One is Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel is the guy who always seems to bring the angel who brings the messages from God. He's always the one who's the messenger from God. And Michael is the great protector of Israel. He is the archangel. He's in charge, if you will. Here's the messenger, though, Mr. Gabriel, Angel Gabriel. He stands in the presence of God. He says, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. You and Galeon, you got great news, buddy. You know, you're going to have a child. Verse 20, and behold... You shall be silent, unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. You believed in your circumstance. You must have forgotten about the God who is the Lord over all circumstances. And so I'm going to make you certain. So he could not talk at all. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them. And he remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Remember, she was disgraced among people. She couldn't bear a child. She was, but she's saying, Praise God, he's taking away my disgrace. But his silence was an affirmation to the reality of the promise because <laughs> he didn't believe it. So it's a punishment, if you will, 
but it also made him certain. From that day on, he knew for certain. So we call this a demonstration of the power of God. I want you to look at the notes there. We call it a demonstration of the power of God. And I want you to look down, let's see, on that first page, one, two, three, fourth paragraph. When I speak of God's power, I'm referring to his omnipotent ability to disrupt the natural order of things with supernatural activity. God's power is unlimited except by the perfection of his divine nature. So this is a miracle, folks, a real bona fide miracle. Oftentimes, the folks that I hang with who are generally grandmas and grandpa will talk about their, the birth of their son. It was a miracle. The birth of that child. No, it's a, a, a very extraordinary yet natural event. It's, it's very extraordinary. I agree. You know, I've been with grandfathers and grandmothers who unfold all the pictures or show me their phone. Wait, 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 there's one more. And I'm going, okay. And there he is eating. Hmm, okay, I've never seen people eating before. And, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're so proud of them. And, oh, it's extraordinary. It's a miracle. No, it's a, you know, an extraordinary natural event. But it's not a miracle. When my son cleaned up when he was a high school student and he cleaned up his room, I said it was a miracle. I was mistaken. It was an extraordinary event. Never happened anymore after that. Uh, but miracles are the disruption of the natural principles, the natural order of things. Listen, folks, it's not common for a woman in her 70s or perhaps 80 to conceive a child. You see, so something had to interrupt the natural order of things with supernatural activity. And that's exactly what happened. And that is a demonstration of the power of my God. I mean, that's why the, the next birth that we'll look at next week is another miracle. You know, virgins don't normally conceive children on their own, you see. And so that's a miracle. That's a miracle, too, that we're going to talk about. Now, Reading on, um, we see the power, his power seen in the parting of the Red Sea or causing water to come from a rock or creating the world by simply speaking it into existence. And yes, miraculously causing an elderly lady who throughout her married years was barren to conceive a child. That's the power of God. It's a demonstration of his power. I love this. We used to sing this song. I'll get your question here. We used to sing this song in church. Uh, it's one of my favorites. We haven't sang it since. You know, at one time, Cindy and I and a bunch of us old folks made up the worship team. Uh, and we're looking forward to someday in the nursing home coming back together again. and make No. Uh, but we used to sing a song called, Ah, Lord God. It was so beautiful. It was from this uh, Jeremiah 32, 17. That's there for you on your paper. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard. God's power refers to his unlimited ability and strength to bring to pass whatever he pleases, and no principle of nature or restrictions of humanity or other powers or authorities can impede the exercise of God's omnipotence. Nothing. If he sets out 
to achieve a, a divine design, he will achieve that design. Listen, if you're a believer, his plan for you is for you to someday be in a new heaven and in new earth in a body that does not have the principle of sin, in a body that is designed to live forever, and you will remain in his presence forever. And I can say to you, that's not a fairy tale. That is an expectant certainty. And the reason it is, is because my God is sovereign, my God is all powerful, my God is all wisdom. He will bring that to pass. You see, that's important for you to keep in mind. Um, so that's what we mean about his power. He says, in the days yet to come, Jesus would say about her son, this boy that would be born from this woman. Matthew 11, 11, uh, I truly, I say to you, among those born of a woman, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a compliment coming from Jesus about this guy. And how did this happen? By the power of God, disrupting the natural order of things with supernatural activity. So what do we learn about God? And what do we learn about people? And what do we learn about the affirmation of God in prophecy? Let me see if I can cover I've only got a couple of minutes, so let me run through this list. I might make a copy of this list and give it to you. You had a question, oh, yeah. didn't you? His birth was supernaturally produced. It was natural. Biology took over once the conception happened. But, but it but was initiated because, I, as I said to you, there was no ability for her to, uh, to go to have a baby anymore. You know, she probably went through all the things that they normally do when that happens. All right, so let me just list some things that I've learned about God in, from the story. And uh, as I said, I might give you a copy if you're interested. If not, that's okay because I want you to think about what you have learned about God from this. So number one, God sees to it that every detail of his plan of redemption is carried out specifically as he has designed it. Because he is sovereign, because he is all-wise and all-powerful, nothing impedes his purposes. Nothing. If he's got a plan in mind, it's going to happen. His sovereignty and his unlimited power guarantees his divine his divinely desired outcome. So the combination of these attributes work together. That's the thing I've noticed in Scripture. I'll see many of the attributes of God all working together to achieve an objective. And here's an objective, that the forerunner of God would come into the face of the earth in fulfillment of what Isaiah said would happen. That the Messiah, before he came, there would be a forerunner who would come. Um, John the Baptist talked about it. I don't have time to show it to you in John, maybe next week, but he talked about it himself, that he is the forerunner. They kept on saying, John, are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He was quoting Isaiah chapter 40. He was saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the one that would make things right for the Messiah when he comes. Here's something else I get from this. In the outworking of his sovereignty, God disrupts the natural order of things with supernatural activity. 
God is never a victim of circumstances because he rules over them. He is never a victim of circumstance. He rules over them. Um, God is gracious and merciful in providing the capacity for an otherwise barren woman to bear a child. And not just any child. Elizabeth's going to be the mother of John the Baptist, the forerunner. And he delivered her from the disgrace that she was un, unjustly receiving from the people. He delivered her from that. Here's another one. When God wants a person to be consecrated to himself for all of their life, he places certain restrictions on them and uh, in regards to potential sinful stumbling blocks. Did you notice about John? It says um, in uh, chapter 1 there, um, when he talks about the child, yeah, verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he was yet in his mother's womb. I've always noticed that, that every time there was a, a person in the Old Testament, and this, this would still be considered an Old Testament era, um, when they were uh, set aside by God to be consecrated to him for life, he, he gave three requirements. One of them was they could never touch anything, any strong drink. They could not, not be involved in uh, uh, sexual immorality. And they were not to have their hair cut because their hair not being cut would uh, show the people that they had been designated as totally committed to God. But I do find it interesting, those re requirements. Here's another one. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his birth, but he never in his life would touch any alcohol. Why? Why do you think? Why was God so worried about him not having any alcohol whatsoever? Can Christians have a drink of beer or something or wine? Can they? Everybody's afraid to answer in front of the pastor. <laughs> it removes any doubt of his motivation and his behavior. Yeah, it's going to purify everything. But God is removing a potential sinful stumbling block in his life. Uh, um, I remember I told, I told you one time before, I, I choose not to have any alcohol in my life, not because God mandated that in scripture, but for two reasons, two big reasons. Number one uh, reason probably is uh, it destroyed my father and took his life at the age of 59. It almost destroyed the lives of my two brothers and it destroyed our family. I don't have a personal liking for it. In other words, that's number, number one reason. And I'm trying to think of the number two reason. This has happened to me before. <laughs> oh, I know what the number two reason is. Thank you, Lord. That's the first time one of my senior moments only lasted a minute. Um, I have enough trouble with my flesh without intoxicating it. It's amazing to me how often I get involved in sin without any liquor. <laughs> Do you understand? So I don't want to chance it. I, and I did notice in Scripture that those who wanted to be to a high level of commitment to God would avoid certain things that might potentially be stumbling blocks in their life. But that's the reason. But I just wanted to point that out to you.
All right, what do we learn about people from this text? Every righteous, even righteous people have difficulty believing God's word because of their circumstances. And they, they, they look at their circumstances insurmountable. So these are good people, aren't they? They're described as righteous people who keep the word of God. They're really good people. But here, this man, he's told he's going to have a child. And he basically said, uh, it's real nice, Gabriel. Thanks for introducing yourself. Thank you for coming here. But let me tell you my circumstance. <laughs> so even, even righteous people can have those moments of weakness and faith. And you have to keep that in mind. People are frequently wrong when they try to interpret the unfortunate circumstance of another as being a curse or a judgment of God. People are often wrong when they try to interpret the unfortunate circumstances of others as being a curse or the judgment of God upon them. Were the people, the women of the village there incorrect about Elizabeth? Was Elizabeth under a curse? No. And it just warns me to be very careful. People go through tough times, oftentimes not because of anything that they have done, but they exist in a fallen world. And we have to be careful that we're not quick to bring judgment. Now, if they have sinned and they are trying to harbor their sin and difficulties come upon them and you have a chance to interact with them and they tell you that it was sin that caused that problem, well, there you go, then you know. But be careful from a distance. Avoid this conversation. I know why their kids are like that. No, you don't. If you do, I'm going to bend my knee to you. You're omniscient. You know people's motives. I can only know people's actions. I'm limited to that. People's actions. I can't know their motives. And so I'm, I'm given a word of caution here to all of us, be careful. You know, I, I can't, unless I know for a fact, unless I've interacted and I'm able in the context of interacting with them to understand objectively what's going on in their life, I don't want to become subjective in my analysis because I will be wrong, chances are. Uh, and then um, just, a, just a principle to give you here at the end. Your present circumstance is not your permanent circumstance. Whatever it is, whatever, whether it's good or bad, what's your permanent circumstance? One day you'll be in eternal glory <laughs> and you will be with God forever. And here on earth, there are so many times where I thought a circumstance was permanent and it wasn't. Uh, even good times are not permanent. I hate to say that. But even good times are not necessarily permanent. Things happen in life. This is a fallen place. This is not heaven. Everybody know that? How many people know this is not heaven? Not even living in Wildwood is in heaven. <laughs> not even close. Um, it's nice here, but it's not heaven. We live in a fallen earth. Circumstances happen. Things happen. So your present circumstance is not the permanent one. The one that God has declared to be your permanent experience, circumstance, is permanent, okay? 
So there you go. Uh, I hope that was helpful. We got more to go. We got a lot of more narratives to, to look at. Thank you for listening. I'll make sure I make some extra notes. Uh, you won't get a quiz next week. I thought about a systematic theology quiz, but then I thought better. <laughs>